0: This yes. is hell. Okay, okay. Live from the United States, where the press has the freedom to be propaganda. This is hell. Knowing our audience, my guess is the furthest thing from your mind when it comes to the war in Gaza, the terrorism of Hamas, or what some have called war crimes and others have said is genocide committed against the Palestinian people. It's likely you're not wondering. Uh, so, what do white nationalists here in the states think about the war? What side are they on? as always, white nationalists are on their own side, trying to figure out how to use the horrific events to their advantage and spread their hate toward and ludicrous conspiracy theories about Jewish people, whether they are Islamophobes who equate Muslims with terrorists and believe that we are seeing what we are seeing is a holy war for Islam, or if they are reactionary anti-Semites who believe a Jewish cabal controls the entire world and are a threat to the United States, the far right, more than anything, seeks to fold, spindle, and manipulate the war in Gaza to benefit their hate-filled ideology and recruit more adherents to their cruel, racist, and deadly way of life. In a few minutes, our guest will be Writer and filmmaker Shane Burley, who posted the Waging Nonviolence article, How the Far Right is Trying to Manipulate the Crisis in Gaza, white nationalists are attempting to hijack Israel's escalating war to draw new recruits and push their anti Semitic and Islamophobic narratives. Go figure, they can do both at the same time. Shane is editor of the 2022 anthology, No Pasaran anti-fascist dispatches from a world of crisis. He's the author of the 2021 book, Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse. He's also the author of the 2017 book, Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It. Shane's work has appeared in such places as get ready for this list NBC News Al Jazeera The Baffler The Independent Jacobin The Daily Beast Band Camp Daily Jewish Currents Haaretz and Full Stop as well as Alternate in These Times Political Research Associates Labor Notes Think Progress and Upping the Ante In other words A lot of the sources where we find guests for This Is Hell. You can follow Shane on Twitter at Shane underscore Burley, B-U-R-L-E-Y, and then that's followed by the number one. Producing is Will Ippen.
1: Will, I hate to ask you this, but how was your weekend? Uh, it started out awesome. Visited my folks in the Northwoods to help them with the... it's a home project. But, but then yeah. you had a twist this then weekend. And I had a twist. I got a call or a message from Beth saying she tested positive for uh, the plague. <laughs> and uh, so I snapped into action, took a test, and man, that positive result returned like within 30 seconds of, you know, no, no dropping kidding. my sample into there. So that was neat i didn't need that full 20 minutes no it usually takes like at least 15 minutes yeah so so uh, you got it bad i guess uh symptoms are pretty mild so uh yeah just rolling with
0: it on our patreon podcast patreon subscribers can do something to me that we do with all of our guests and that is listeners can ask me a question from hell a question they will likely hate to ask, I will hate to answer, or a question that will lead me to respond in a way that listeners will hate. We have been doing this for a few months now, and so far I think all of my answers have fallen in the final category, that our listeners hate my responses, but I only believe that because I have hated my answers to the question from hell asked by our Patreon subscribers. I never realized how difficult it is to answer a question from hell before and what a great job our guests do in answering until Patreon patrons started asking me and posting their questions from hell. And we need more Patreon subscribers to post their questions from hell for me. So if you are a subscriber, please ask away. And if you are not a Patreon patron yet, but believe you have a great question from hell for me, subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell and post under the news. Paper clipping of me from the mid-1980s Showing me and a late friend of mine Saving East Lansing, Michigan from flooding Yeah, that's at our Patreon page Keep in mind, like our guests I have not seen or heard or read The question from hell prior to it being Asked of me by whoever is producing That week's Patreon podcast This week's question from hell for me Submitted by a Patreon patron That producer Will Ippen Selected was from subscriber Public Universal, Comrade. Public Universal Comrade asks When the hell is Chuck going to start taking actual weekend breaks Those ones we all said we would support Chuck taking So there's a bit of a backstory here For Public Universal Comrade's question A few months ago, I did a Patreon monologue about time Not only as it is represented on a watch, phone, clock, or calendar But about time being ours Or being bought by someone else Being sold by us to someone else A reconsideration My monologue was a reconsideration Of how that impacts the way we think And feel about time And not just any time But the time that in total Makes up our brief time on earth I talked about the price We put on our time Despite it being priceless And I can tell you from recent experience When I was literally on my deathbed last year And from a lifetime of experience with others who knew they were about to die, our limited time is worth far more than we realize until it's just about up and the realization that you sold off far too much of your time and for far too little. In that monologue on Patreon, I asked whether patrons would continue subscribing to Patreon if we cut back from three 80-minute shows every week plus the Patreon podcast to two 90-minute shows a week while continuing to do the Patreon show every week. The reason I asked is because during the several occasions I was hospitalized last year and the subsequent procedures I had this year, we lost one out of every eight subscribers on Patreon. And as we are completely listener-supported, losing that kind of support can be brutal to our already dreadful bottom line that is very much in the red. However, as exhaustion and working for 60 plus hours every week on the show, prioritizing it all over everything else, including my physical and mental health, my brain and my body have been telling me I need to work less. I need to actually have a weekend. To a person, every Patreon patron who posted told us that they would still support the show, even if it was only once a week, as most podcasts don't produce more than an hour a week. And we've been doing four hours every week since the late 1990s, and now we've been producing five hours of content when you include Patreon. Hell, there's shows that don't do more than an hour a month that are making 80 times more than us while producing a 20th of the content. I'm literally working myself to death and going broke while I'm killing myself. That's why Public Universal Comrade asked... When the hell is Chuck going to start taking actual weekend breaks? Those we all said we would support Chuck taking. I have an update from this past weekend and that very question. When am I going to start actually taking weekends? Well, I still do not know. Because, yet again, I did not have a work-free Saturday or Sunday, and my hopes for a longer three, even four-day work weekend were once again... Instead, I worked every day and have not had a day off from work since I took a one week break at the beginning of October as a gift to myself for my birthday But not even during that time did I take off any work I still worked on the show every day, so it wasn't as much a break as it was a week of me catching up on show-related work that I simply did not have have time to do when working full-time on researching, writing, and scheduling the show So, when the hell am I going to start taking actual weekend breaks? Those ones you all said you would support me taking It looks like I'm actually going to be able to take some time off from work During the upcoming holiday week when the U.S. celebrates Thanksgiving While while well, there's many of us who are experiencing cognitive dissonance By observing the National Day of Mourning If all goes, goes well and that means me working every day for two more weeks I just might be able to take four straight days off from the show over the holiday Now i got to figure out what to do with all of that time other than obsessing about the show. But more important than me working throughout yet another weekend, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is what are you uncritically supporting these days? What are you uncritically supporting these days? We will share your question from hell answers as posted on Patreon coming up after our talk with Shane on white nationalists Exploiting the war in Gaza for their own benefit Coming up, white nationalists and the war In Gaza, will share some of your Answers to our question From hell for our listening audience We'll tell you what's happening, or what happened Actually, during our most recent bonus Patreon podcast, which is available right now At patreon.com slash Hell. We will be sharing this week in rotten history And we'll give you a heads up on what's Happening later this week on the show Your eyewitness To grief This is hell. And is there anything more annoying, miserable, that causes as much agony and pain as far-right neo-Nazis who want nothing more than to take advantage of every situation, no matter how horrible, to spread their brand of hate? It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer. But the far-right is back at it again, and this time they're trying to manipulate the war in Gaza to their own benefit no matter the cost. Here to give us a unique perspective on Gaza that you may not be considering, writer and filmmaker Shane Burley posted the Waging Nonviolence article, How the Far Right is Trying to Manipulate the Crisis in Gaza. Welcome to This is Hell, Shane.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on. I love the show, so I'm happy to finally be here.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much. I, we've, You've been on our list for possible guests for years, so I'm really glad that we finally got to connect. You write, at a rally near the White House, 40 white nationalist National Justice Party or NJP members demanded a ceasefire in Gaza on October 28th. In a country as broke as ours, why the hell are they dragging us into another Zionist war? Yelled one member of the group standing right next to alt-right podcaster Mike Enoch Pinovich. After the uh, speaker made an anti-Semitic reference to the United States as a Zionist-occupied territory, One of the attendees demanded no more Jewish wars to a passing cameraman. So the protests I have heard about and seen uh, some clips of include those showing supporters of Palestinians saying anti-Semitic remarks and those of supporters of Israel demanding uh, Gaza be turned into, quote unquote, a parking lot, as a couple of people said. What do we miss in our understanding of the reaction to the war in Gaza so far When we only see the binary of supporters on either side saying what can be defined as hate speech toward the other. What do we miss in our understanding when we only see that as the two sides?
2: I think part of it is the way that we frame discussions about Zionism and anti-Zionism, where anti-Zionism is seen as potentially anti-Semitic by its very nature. Um. And that kind of dispels the reality, which is that there are people who argue in favor of Israel and maintain anti-Semitic views, and there's people who maintain against Israel and maintain anti-Semitic views. But the vast majority of people in the Palestine Solidarity Movement are there because they support freedom and justice in Palestine, there are other people who come in, not because they really own those goals, but because they see it as a way of diverting anger towards Jews as a supposedly collective entity. So when they're talking about Zionist-occupied government, they're talking specifically about a Jewish-occupied government. When they're talking about Israel, they're seeing it only as a Jewish collectivity. And because they know there's a lot of anger right now, and they know that people are flooding into the streets, and they want to take action... They think that this is an opportunity for them to divert people away from the mainline Palestine solidarity movement and into their weird corner of it.
0: So uh, being or seeing Jewish people as a collective entity, do you see that also taking place within not just on the fringes of the far right or even those on the far left, but do you see that also taking place in the establishment corporate media?
2: I think that it happens in a weird way on the sort of pro-Israel right a little bit more, where you find right-wing commentators speaking to what they hope is a Jewish audience um, to create sort of a, an allegiance between them by showing this kind of explosive support for Israel, while at the same time having other kind of far-right politics that typically harm Jews. So it's a way of sort of buying a certain amount of loyalty by saying, hey, well, look, I support Israel. And isn't that your collective entity? Isn't that the thing you care about the most? And that is something that, for example, Donald Trump said very explicitly when trying to garner Jewish votes, very explicitly in his treatment of, for example, moving the the embassy to Jerusalem, All those sorts of things are built on this idea that they want to communicate with a Jewish audience by making this connection between Israel and Jews firm.
0: There have been polls recently that show President Biden's support among Arab Americans is dropping due to the policy, his policy, his administration's policy on Gaza and Israel. Meanwhile, Fox News is supposedly benefiting from the war as those supporting Israel have found what has been described as a refuge for pro-Israel as well as anti-Palestinian perspectives. That would suggest white nationalists in Fox News would be at odds over Israel. Is there a divide right now taking place between Fox and white nationalists over the Gaza war? Absolutely. Uh, And this is actually a split that's not new. It's one that
2: happens between white nationalists and the more establishment side of the far right, the one that's associated more with the GOP and the electoral system, because that dividing line is about whether or not they quote unquote name the Jew. If they think that Jews are at the center of this kind of global cabal, this global problem that they're locating, if they explicitly say it, that's usually the breaking point that they have with the mainstream right. The mainstream right uses Israel as its absolute key to the Middle East, right? They see it as an ethno-nationalist state in a good way. They, they want to emulate that. They want to have a sort of brutal military occupation against largely um, Muslim folks in the Middle East. And so this is something that they actually push for as a real centerpiece of how they view foreign policy. That is not the same as a lot of white nationalists who instead see Israel as simply another machination of Jews controlling global policy. They believe that Israel is what controls the U.S. and that funnels money and gets the U.S. into foreign wars, things like that. So that dividing line has been maintaining for decades. And in fact, it's one of the ways in which they want to pull from disaffected areas. Of the far-right electoral base. So they're going to say, hey, if you're dissatisfied with what's happening, you know, if you have an isolationist idea um, or you have a more libertarian perspective, come over here because we actually support criticizing Israel. We're actually going to break with the establishment. And this has always been the recruiting stat- strategy because what they want is disaffected people from the far-right electoral sphere. They want to pull people who no longer feel represented by
0: Fox News or Tucker Carlson. So do, I mean, you've been studying white nationalists now for a couple of decades. Do white uh, nationalists, do they spend a lot of time arguing over who they should hate most?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this is a centerpiece of how they define themselves. And just like you see in any online culture, you have people trying to one-up each other, name Jews more explicitly. But what really defines explicit white nationalism, and particularly in the U.S., is how central the Jews are. Because you have to remember... White nationalists believe in a global plot against white people. And there's only one way that that really makes sense. If there's a little cabal at the top that's manipulating people. And so the Jews make a perfect uh, totem for this, because the way that they sort of racialize them is excessively smart, conniving, that they've hand their hands in world affairs, that they manipulate the modern world. And so that is how they piece it together. Without that, their whole idea would fall apart.
0: So you write that despite white nationalist claims of solidarity with Palestine, the white nationalist intervention on this issue comes not from their concern for Palestinian lives, but out of a desire to manipulate the conflict to serve their own racial narratives. Is there any suggestion that they support Palestine or the people of Gaza? Because being racist, that would surprise me.
2: (laughs) I mean, they they support them in as much as they feel like they could have solidarity with folks against Jews. That's really the basis of it. And so if you check their sort of threads, their publications long enough, they will admit that, no, they don't particularly care about Palestinians. No, for example, they're not going to support Palestinian refugees being resettled in the U.S. Or, or what they see as white dominant countries. No, they don't want to give aid to Palestinians. They're not going to support any of the actual humanitarian efforts to support Palestinians that are um, uh, being ethnically cleansed in Gaza. No, instead, they see it simply opportunistic and say, hey, look, look what's happened to Palestinians. This is another example. Of the pernicious malevolent Jewish influence in the world. And really, it's just that argumentation. And you see there are often few, very few instances of white nationalists trying to build bridges to the Palestine solidarity movement. They're almost always kicked out, right? People, people um, can see through it pretty quickly. But it's always done on this enemy of my enemy is my friend mentality.
0: We'll get to that in a moment. You mentioned the Occidental Observer, which you describe as a publication that few know about but has had an influential role in developing American white nationalism. You explain the publication pushes racial pseudoscience, uh, bogus race and crime statistics, uh, arguments for white ethnic superiority, and scapegoating immigrants, queer people, and women. But as the Israeli bombing of Gaza began after the October 7th attack by Hamas, uh, coverage shifted immediately to focus on Israel. You then cite Bernard M. Smith writing in The Occidental Observer, Israel is a grotesque country. Not only do we not receive anything in compensation for our support, but American interests are also damaged as a result of our support for Israel. Now, grotesque means comically or repulsively ugly or distorted. Is it typical of, the anti, of anti-Semitism to make references to Israel as repulsive and ugly? Does using the word grotesque reveal their level of anti-Semitism?
2: Certainly tracks with the way that they talk about Jews. You know, one of the things that's key about the Arsenal Observer is that it's run by or edited by Kevin McDonald, who's sort of like the Karl Marx of modern anti-Semitism. He believes... <laughs> Judaism is what he calls a group evolutionary strategy that you, Jews use to eugenically become smarter and then create ideologies that confuse Gentiles to work against their own collective interests, right? That's a pretty grand theory of the world that's come over, you know, large uh, book volumes and, and lots of like, academic sounding speeches and things like that. But the idea is that Israel is sort of in a way a pinnacle of Jewish power and control. So not only do Jews control the banks, not only do they confuse you by controlling Hollywood, not only do they you know, make your teenage kids into liberals or you know, push the queer agenda, they don't just do all those things, they even control all of US foreign policy through this Jewish collectivity in the Middle East, this grotesque thing built in their own image, and so this is all about how they're going to frame this. How central can they put Jews into every world affair? And when it comes to Israel, that gives them the perfect uh sort of totem to look at. They have this institution that's controlling all of the U.S. policy.
0: So is say they believe
2: it's controlling all the U.S. policy.
0: So is are are people like Kevin McDonald Macna- is the far right? you were mentioning how they are trying to get people on the far right who are disaffected to join their cause. Is McDonald, is the Occidental Observer, are white nationalists trying to convert those who are liberal, liberals or on the left who are war protesters who oppose war crimes? Are they trying to turn those people as well into anti-Semites or is this just focused on the far right?
2: There's a pathway for people who think of themselves as liberals, and it usually comes through conspiracy theories. So they've had certain success over time kind of recruiting people who maybe were a part of the anti-war movement and then got involved in 9-11 truth, the idea that the U.S. is actually responsible for for 9-11, um, other forms of kind of conspiratorial thinking. This is the same pathway people went from sort of natural supplements to COVID denialism, there is a pathway that they, they use that. And when it comes to international affairs, when we're talking about Israel, conspiracy theories just have had more traction than they've had in other political issues. And so that, I would say, was the, the pathway there. When it comes to the far right, there is enough sort of uh, people in the right-wing sphere who think of themselves as anti-establishment who think of themselves as critical of the direction the U.S. is going, who think of themselves critical of what they think of as globalism. And so that's other pathway there. So there is different pathways, but it really has to be built around how conspiratorial someone understands the issues. Are they understanding the war in Gaza as simply this kind of Western imperial power um, attacking a marginalized, disaffected indigenous population? Or is it something more covert? Is it about a small cabal that's pulling strings for their own benefits?
0: So, to you, why do you think liberals are so susceptible to these conspiracy theories? I mean, that's very insightful by the far right to notice this susceptibility to conspiracy theories by liberals. But I know a lot of liberals who uh, have been uh, have fallen for conspiracy theories uh, in a variety of ways, but especially when it comes to, you know, things like uh, there being a microchip in the vaccine for covid. Why do you think or not? Why do you think? But why is it that liberals seem to be uh, so susceptible to conspiracy theories, even those from the far right?
2: I think there's a few reasons. I think one is that there's a lack of sort of political education that people have access to, both in the schooling. Obviously, we've had you know attacks on public education for decades, so people aren't really getting a great foundation in world affairs. But we also don't have institutions that help people channel their anger into productive outlets. For example, people aren't largely members of labor unions anymore. You know, if you're a member of a labor union, you might look at world affairs and you have a, a system there to sort of fight back or to try and reclaim dignity or resources, things like that. Or you might have a political party that you're active in, or you might have a community group. Those things have declined really sharply over the last few decades. So people don't have access to ways of thinking about this that are more productive. That's part of it. We also just have like larger amounts of disaffection. We have falling real wages. We have communities that aren't able to maintain themselves. A lot of people increase you know, an epidemic of loneliness. People aren't involved in you know, churches or synagogues or institutions where they get to know each other and kind of harsh relationships. So that loneliness breeds this kind of thinking because it puts you online into a feedback loop of conspiratorial sort of media output. So all of these things, I think, work together to undermine our ability of having a coherent understanding simply how world affairs work.
0: That's fascinating to think about how the epidemic of loneliness has contributed to this. That is really fascinating. You write, the Jewish conspiracy is baked into Kevin McDonald's worldview, and he believes Jews have now gained power across all dominant institutions by shifting the values in the worlds of academics, anthropology, philosophy, the media, banking, and politics. Has that always been the Jewish conspiracy theory among anti-Semites that Jewish people are conspiring to shift values? And if so, how does the far right believe Jewish people benefit from shifting values? How, how, have those, how have those values shifted in their point of view that makes it look like, to them at least, this benefits Jewish people?
2: Yes, they've always believed this more or less. Kevin McDonald created sort of a coherent theory everyone could sign on to. There used to be competing theories inside white national circles about how this worked, but he sort of uh, gave a uh, an explanation that they all said, okay, that seems like it's about right. And the way that they understand this is that Jews essentially manipulate Gentiles to work against their own ethnic interests. So the argument there would go is that Jews understand ethnic interests. They fight for their own. But what they do is they help support movements that undermine a Western sense of itself. So they support things like feminism, which destabilizes the patriarchy, or they, you know, support queer rights, which destroys the family, or they, um, you know, uh, support movements like anthropology, which sort of undo the notion that there is like a, a a white racial superiority. They do all these things so that they can sort of destroy the what they think are the natural sort of protective elements of society against these outsiders. And then what Jews do is they try and destabilize white hegemony with immigration, with civil rights, with all these sort of movements that they think where that will sort of undo this status quo. And so to understand the changes that we've seen over the last, you know, 70, 80 years in society and have, particularly with advances made by communities of color, those same communities of color that white nationalists think are unable to, you know, build up new societies, they have to put the responsibility on another outside party. And in that case, it's the Jews. It's the only way they have to explain why things have changed at the same time as they believe white supremacy is so ingrained. So, what are they ignoring? I mean I think they're ignoring the reality that there is no coherent Jewish conspiracy that Jews actually have a variety of different positions as we've seen recently um around Israel's war in Gaza that there is no sort of attack on like a central white um, identity And that communities of color have been incredibly powerful on their own building social movements to, to confront these things. There's no need for some Jewish sort of overlord to explain why those advances have made, been made. They've been made because overwhelmingly communities have organized and put pressure on society and
0: taken power back. So it's racist towards those communities as well. You quote far-right activist and former Florida congressional candidate Laura Loomer, posting on Twitter shortly after the Hamas attack, stating, "...there is no such thing as Palestine. It's always been a figment of the imagination of Islamic terrorists." And Jew haters, you add that Loomer has been joined by a chorus on the far right, primarily among those who still have some connection to the Republican Party. You then cite Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene on October 7th, the day of the attack by Hamas, posting on her official Telegram channel, make no mistake, this is Islam's holy war and their ultimate goal is to wipe out all of Israel. What impact do statements like those have on support or opposition for Israel's invasion and continued bombing of Gaza? Do those who oppose the far right react to such statements by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene by reconsidering support for Israel? Or does the far right just see people like Marjorie Taylor Greene as a sellout for Israel?
2: They see people like Marjorie Taylor Greene as a sellout for Israel. Um, that and on the explicit white nationalist right, I think the effect that what Marjorie Taylor Greene or Laura Loomer has is actually on the more mainstream right. As they attempt to dehumanize Palestinians, as they try and take their identity away, what they want to do is undermine the argument to the, the argumentation that Palestinians had that this is their indigenous homeland and that they have a right to live there and to build societies according to their own self determination. So when they do things like erase Palestinian identity or they frame Palestinian resistance as an Islamic holy war, what they do is they take the political subjectivity away from them and make it easier to then buy Israel's arguments that this is too you know, simply, you know, terrorism attacks, that they have no legitimacy, and that they have to eradicate Hamas, and that's kind of where the end of the end of the issue is. What they want to do is create an echo chamber onside the more beltway right that will totally destabilize any attempt to call for a ceasefire or to stop the assault on Gaza.
0: Again, uh, Congressman Margie Taylor Green on October 7th states, make no mistake this is Islam's holy war and their ultimate goal is to wipe out all of Israel. But mainstream media seems to be telling that us that that is the goal of Hamas, that Hamas is an existential threat to uh, Israel. They have stated that they want to see the end of the state of Israel. So how much is Marjorie Taylor Greene's analysis in line with what we're seeing in the mainstream establishment media?
2: It's and frankly not that different. There ends up being no difference between the Palestinian people and Hamas. There's no context provided about the 75 years of occupation dispossession. Of Palestinians that are the the kind of breeding ground for these sorts of attacks, and there's ends up being no look at what's come after the Hamas attack, which is ten thousand deaths in Gaza, um disproportionate number of children, all those things end up being erased from it, and they end up with a simplistic binary narrative that focuses just on Hamas just on the the atrocious attacks from Hamas, and don't want to look at the rest of it and I think what's also important to to add about Marjorie Taylor Greene is that she is well known for anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So when she's making this sort of claim, she's not doing it in def- some sincere defense of Jews. She's doing it instead because she sees this defensive act as a proxy to go after Palestinians on one hand, but also all of what she understands as the Muslim world on the other.
0: We are speaking with writer and filmmaker Shane Burley, who posted the Waging Nonviolence article, How the Far Right is Trying to Manipulate the Crisis in Gaza. Shane is editor of the 2022 anthology, No Pasaran: Anti-Fascist Dispatches from a World of Crisis. You can follow Shane on Twitter at Shane underscore Burley, B-U-R-L-E-Y. Followed by the number one You write this is the same sentiment The one that Margie Taylor Greene gives That was then echoed by Former senior Trump advisor Stephen Miller The architect of the child separation policy And Muslim ban Who is a former protege of David Horowitz The far right wing uh, professor uh, You write that uh, You then quote Miller tweeting on October 19th Israel is fighting a jihadist death squad a genocidal terrorist camp operating on its border. Israel's straightforward military mission is to eliminate the death squad, a necessary action to ensure the survival of the sole Jewish state. Does the right, does, do white nationalists believe that the correct response to you know, what people are calling genocide, that the correct response is genocide? Is genocide for the far right the cause of and solution to all of life's and the world's problems?
2: I think it depends on who you ask. Um, Even amongst white nationalists, they rarely will publicly claim that, though that seems to underskirt most of their arguments. But I think this is a question about the right as a whole. And if they see, for example, Carpet bombing Gaza as the solution to Israel's safety, then they are saying that genocide is the thing that will keep Jews safe. And I think we can look at Israel right now and the conditions that Israeli Jews have, have gone through and say that no, this is not a tremendously bunch of safe Jews right now. These kinds of attacks do not keep anybody safer. Instead, they keep the violence going when a ceasefire is what's necessary to keep everybody safe. So I think. When we look at here from the right, and they're throwing this kind of what feel like conflicted ideas, what underskirts this entirely is the belief that a homogenous white society is necessary, that communities of color and Jews need to be separated, and the political agency of both of those communities needs to be undermined.
0: So you don't see them as being contradictory in their statements, because you see this as one mission behind even those statements that seem on the surface being contradictory.
2: Yeah, it just depends on where they put the emphasis. For for open neo-Nazi types, it's always going to be the Jews. For people like David Horowitz, he sees Islam and Muslim immigrants as the primary el- enemy in this battle. So it's really just about where their personal focus is. But yeah, it's always underscored with the same sense. They need homogenous white spaces, and they need to keep anyone different out.
0: You write that far-right media provocateur, Andy go completely devoted his social media presence and articles at the post-millennial to talking about the alleged anti-Semitism of the left. He points out when pro-Palestine protesters are black or Muslim and then frames them as radical extremists, suggesting that somehow Jewish philanthropist George Soros is responsible for them. So does the far right claim others are anti-Semitic while uh, practicing anti-Semitism themselves? Is anti-Semitism on the far right, both pejorative to use to attack political enemies and a kind of badge of honor?
2: Absolutely. Uh, There's basically a cottage industry on the right of accusing the left of being anti-Semitic. And oftentimes, while they're doing this, they'll play into anti-Semitic stereotypes or conspiracy theories, either blaming it on George Soros or talking about cultural Marxism, which is, again, another anti-Semitic dog whistle. And so again, it's about opportunistically using Jews. This is not about concern for Jews. If it was, then they wouldn't be using anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It's instead about using Jews as sort of a chess piece in their attack at larger enemies. You know, In the case of someone like Gandhi, no, it's about finding any opportunity to lob stones at the left. And anti-Semitism ends up just being a really easy sort of libel to throw at them. At the same time, we're talking about real anti-Semitism rising and people like Andy Ngo and others on the far right confusing what it even means. And so there's really no benefit that's coming to Jewish people or or, uh, particularly in the U.S., but really in Israel either.
0: You point out that European politicians and parties on the far right supporting Israel. Quote, this could have been anticipated since Israel's ruling Likud party and its leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, have worked to develop alliances with the global right despite its rampant anti-Semitism. Why embrace the far right if the far right is anti-Semitic? Does Netanyahu accept any support for Israel no matter who it's from or what the supporters represent because Israel is desperate for support? Is Israel that desperate for support that they will accept it even if it's from those who are anti-Semitic? It seems to be the case, and it's been that case for years. I mean, if we think about particularly the U.S., who
2: are the largest organized supporters of Israel? It's Christian Zionists. And Christian Zionists really only support Israel not because of their deep love for Jews and, and Judaism, but because they see Jews as a necessary piece in their eschatology. In their vision of the end of the world, it requires a lot of Jews to die or to be converted, basically to cease to be Jews. um, And that's how they see the return of Christ. But they're also the ones that are foundationally supporting Israel. You know, churches will arrange trips to uh, the West Bank where they can volunteer on Jewish owned um, vineyards. Um, They're pumping money both into the settlements in mainline Israel. So that is a main support and a main reason why there's such a heavy sort of institutional support in the U.S. from the GOP. But when it comes to the global right, I think what Netanyahu is finding is that, you know, Orban's Hungary or, or places in Poland, the AFD in Germany, they are willing to support Israel Partially as a proxy to that thing we just talked about, their sort of war on what they see as Islam uh, immigrating into the US. So basically, or antiquity immigrating into Europe. So they support Israel in as much as they think they can mobilize that rhetoric against Muslim immigrants and refugees. So it's a real opportunistic pull here. And as Lakhud moves further to the right and alienates not just, you know, their political allies globally, but particularly American and European Jews, they're going to have to find supporters somewhere. And they found that in people where they basically make a devil's bargain. They're going to partner with Christian Zionists who who opportunistically mobilize support for Israel. And they're going to partner with Islamophobic parties in Europe who do the same thing.
0: You mentioned Germany's alternative for Deutschland party or the AFD and its support for Israel. You write that in recent years, the AFD has attempted to court right-wing Jews by using their support for Israel as a way of drawing them into the fight against what the AFD thinks is the bigger threat, Islam. So are right-wing Israelis supporting neo-Nazis? And if they are, is it simply, again, as you were stating earlier, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Or are they embracing More than just that easy catchphrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend.
2: I think it runs a little deeper than that. I think we're in a confusing place where we see Jewish political leaders, both in Israel and the U.S., sometimes using anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And it would be easy to say they're just politically mobilizing this. But I think that these ideas have become so coded and so embedded in right-wing thinking that they can be used without even being consciously ascribed to anti-Semitism. So Libs of TikTok, that's a popular Twitter and and social media account that basically spreads conspiracy theories that I would say are blatantly anti-Semitic. But it's run by a Jewish woman, right? And it's mobilized against the political left primarily. And so what you're finding is a right-wing political culture that is foundationally using conspiracy theories, usually of an anti-Semitic bent. And anyone that sort of takes part in that project has some collaboration with that. And so that's why you find, you know, these these political leaders in Israel who are mobilizing the same kind of right wing political talking points and politics that you find in other parts of the country that were sort of vanguarded by anti-Semitic far right figures. I think it it creates a confusing future for how we understand terms like anti-Semitism, which can be vague and contradictory and are now existing in Jewish right wing spaces.
0: How important, because I've had a lot of people contact me about this and making this reference, how important is our understanding of the far-right view of Israelis as white and Palestinians as non-white? And is that why, despite being anti-Semitic, the far-right supports Israel? Because they view Israelis as white and Palestinians not.
2: I think the pro-Israel side views Israelis as white, obviously mischaracterizing the actual demographics of Israel. And I think that's particularly why they support them in the sort of what they see as a war against Palestine. And it's because they see it as sort of an outpost of the West or an outpost of Western imperialism. And so they want to maintain that hegemony in the region. They want to police those communities. They want to create barriers against what they see as kind of Muslim immigration. And they particularly want to use Israel's kind of ethno-nationalist policies as a model for what they can bring home. And I think that is a really key part of how the European and U.S. right, the pro-Israel section of the right sees it. For white nationalists, they do not see Jews as white, at least not white in the way that they understand it. They see them as interlocutors, as people pretending to be white, so as to manipulate actual white people. And again, this ends up being that breaking point where they can, they're finding this unreconcilable difference between white nationalists and the sort of electoral far right that still supports Israel.
0: You write this appropriation of Palestinian struggles has been a long-term strategy in some sectors of the far right, which points to Israeli settler colonialism as an extension of the supposedly malevolent Jewish mind. So, is the far right opposed to settler colonialism? And if so, are they supportive of, I don't know, indigenous movements?
2: Sometimes they say they will. This has been a rhetorical strategy for decades, where they are going to use the language of decolonization and just bring it back to themselves. They'll talk about white people as an endangered nationality. They'll talk about them as indigenous to Europe. Uh, they'll talk about nationalism as being good for everyone, Um, and so this is all a a talking point to sort of like maintain this neutrality in language. Are they actually against settler colonialism? Absolutely not, right? The U.S. is a settler colony; they're foundationally understand that as a a white settler nation. Same thing with other kind of nations around the world. So. I think this is always a rhetorical strategy, and it's one that they've employed since the 60s in some sectors. So when you see someone like David Duke, not known for being a great anti-racist, posting about how we have to stop attacks on Palestinian sovereignty, that is not a sincere concern for Palestinians. It's instead trying to appropriate left-sounding language to kind of either in some cases go under the radar, but to also make the case that they are the authentic protectors of these values, which is an argument the far right makes about a lot of political issues that are normally and correctly found on the left.
0: Is the far right attempting to co-opt the movement against the war in Gaza? Because a lot of that peace movement is centered on solidarity between Palestinians and Israelis. Is the far right trying to crush not only the anti-war movement, not only the peace movement, but any sense of Palestinian-Israeli solidarity?
2: I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I think what we're seeing now all across the U.S. and really across the world is a Jewish-Palestinian solidarity. um, It's a really unifying demand, a ceasefire. Literally everybody benefits it other than the U.S. kind of war machine or right-wing Israeli politicians. And so what they would rather have, as a unified struggle against Jews, both in Israel and globally. And to reframe the anger, the very righteous anger that's happening across the world as we see war crimes happening in Gaza, they want to reframe it to target directly at Jews. And so this is not a new thing. You know, white nationalists would try to join anti-war protests in earlier times. They tried to join Occupy Wall Street. They showed up at environmental demonstrations. They've done this many times in the past, and they know that they're not going to win the majority of people over. But there are weak points there, people who don't understand those politics, people whose anger uh, sort of dominates the thinking on this, that they've been able to pull
0: one at a time or by small groups. And I think that's what they're hoping to do here. And then those people become the ones on the far right. They become the focus of news coverage. You see them saying that we want to wipe out Israel or we want to make, uh, you know, uh, Gaza into a parking lot. Why does the establishment media focus on these sensationalized statements that are very much on the fringe of what people are saying at these protests?
2: Well, on the the first point is that it just makes sense for corporate media. It's what drives outrage and attention, and therefore, that's what brings in advertising dollars. Um, I think, in general, sensationalism is a lot easier to sell than nuance. I think when it comes to to Israel specifically, there's sort of a pro-Israel bias in the media that fails to understand the context of Palestinian struggle. Partially, that's because we live in a settler colony ourselves, and we constantly institutionally erase the history that built this country. And that history shares a lot with the more recent history history of Israel. So it's a little bit easier, I think, for the the media to tell Israel's narrative about itself than it is to tell a more nuanced uh, or decolonial narrative. So I think that happens there as well. And then I think there's a lot of confusion about what is uh – uh anti-Semitic on the one hand, and also what's Islamophobic, and that they're not really able to tell a nuanced story of that. We have organizations like the Anti-Defamation League that will call pretty much any criticism of Israel anti-Semitic, and that's the dominant institution that media outlets go to for commentary. So then they reproduce those narratives, and then we get these stories about rising anti-Semitism. There is certainly rising anti-Semitism, but signs that say from the river to the sea are not an example of that. And so I think we end up with this confused narrative that just reproduces itself over time.
0: You right about Palestinian solidarity organizers being routinely labeled as anti-Semitic by groups like the ADL, which confuses the issue and makes it more difficult to address real anti-Semitism when it surfaces. So what is the issue that seems to be confusing the ADL on the Gaza War?
2: I mean, it's using Israel as the litmus test for what is and is not anti-Semitic. There's a framing that they have that assumes that Israel is the centerpiece of Jewish safety and therefore anything that's viewed as an attack on Israel is necessarily an attack on Jews and then categorically anti-Semitic. But the problem is, is that this doesn't understand anti-Semitism as an ideology. Um, as a conspiracy theory and a particular way of seeing the world. And that's really important if we're going to parse out what is and what is not anti-Semitic. Does it have a coherent ideology? Does it have a lineage? Does it come from a certain way of thinking or not? And that is not the consistency that you see applied by a lot of these organizations that are tasked with fighting anti-Semitism.
0: You also mentioned the National Justice Party, an outgrowth of the Right Stuff podcast and their flagship show, The Daily Showa, has made documenting the war in Gaza a primary focus of their website. The Justice Report, Eric Stryker, a, a, a contributor to several of the network's podcasts, is known for having a particularly syncretic form of neo-Nazism. And you cite Stryker writing on Telegram on October 14th. Now sporting a Palestinian flag in his name, quote, there is no such thing as left or right. Antifa, the Christian right, the Democrats and Republicans, populists and the establishment, 100% of them are geopolitical and social chess pieces deployed by world Jewry to manage and manipulate unassuming and low-agency Gentiles. Do white nationalists believe the only thing dividing white people, the only thing that leads to their differences, is a Jewish conspiracy, that white solidarity, if you will, doesn't exist because of a Jewish conspiracy to divide us, that, that otherwise all white people have shared beliefs and goals. And if so, are <laughs> white nationalists racist toward white people? They
2: certainly have a low estimation of white people and a great deal of white nationalist time is spent criticizing other white people and the stupidity they believe most white people have in their politics. Um, There's a real um, dissatisfaction with their sort of neighbors in this supposed white national project. Um, They do think that Jews have been the fundamental core piece that has undermined what they think is a natural sense of self-preservation that white folks would have. And I'll even add, sometimes they'll extend that to communities of color and say, well, actually, Jews are undermining their sense of racial solidarity. and there could be a future where different communities separate and respect each other's boundaries and differences. But if it wasn't for the Jews, forcing integration and forcing desegregation and forcing these kind of liberal progressive values, it really depends on how extreme they are into the neo-Nazi camp. There are a number of these folks who put Jews as the absolute center of every political issue. For example, the neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, literally will put Jews as the core actor in every single political conflict that happens. Other people have a little bit more nuance to that, but Jews end up being the force by which all white people are sort of de aryanized They take away their sense of self-preservation, they destroy their communities, they destroy the natural order of the world, and create this kind of flattening, homogenous, integrated world order.
0: Many critics and analysts believe that there is growing criticism, the United States, Israel, and their relationship. How much do you think that reconsideration of the US and Israel and their power and prestige is being driven by the far right? Is the war in Gaza leading to increased support for the far right here in the US?
2: I think that I would say that increased conflict breeds support for radical movements in general, and the far right are just one of them. I think it's also helping build attention from the left about people who want to reconsider how the U.S. supports uh, Israel's military aid, um, how the U.S. supports Israel's occupation of Palestine. So I think that there's growth on all the places. And, And what I think always concerns me is that when there is a radical moment, And when there's a break in the consensus, that is also the point at which the far right wants to grow and recruit. And so I think it's incumbent on folks on the left to not just build their movements and build up the movement for freedom and justice in Palestine, but to also sort of fight back against any attempts at entryism or any attempts at recruitment on the far right. And I think most people in the Palestine Solidarity Movement are prepared for that because they've been involved in other social movements as well. They've been involved in fighting events by the Proud Boys. With um, Oath Keepers, other far right organizations, they were part of the uprising against Trump and against police violence. So they have a sense of what these groups are and what they want and why their interests aren't kind of commiserate. And so I think it's about those radical movements looking at the far right and ensuring that they make
0: no uh, advances as well. So, you mentioned Ben Lorber who is an associate, who works with you, a cl- colleague of yours. He tells you that many of the people at these Palestine solidarity rallies are anti-fascists and they know who their local fascists are and are determined for them not to have a space at their rally. Has the rise of Antifa, the rise of anti-fascism strengthened Palestinian solidarity?
2: Absolutely. Uh, The rise of anti-fascism has strengthened left-wing social movements in general. It's built up their numbers. It's created a protective element. Remember that a lot of these, for for example, Palestinian solidarity actions are vulnerable to far-right people who might want to attack them. This has been a trend across the last seven or eight years, but particularly since 2020, where there have been car attacks. People have driven cars into demonstrations. They've opened fire on demonstrators. They've attacked demonstrators in different venues. And so anti-fascism, as a sort of protective element there, helps to keep those demonstrations safe. They also add another sort of ideological and um, sort of conscious way of thinking to the movement of saying, like, there's actually far-right movements that want to manipulate crisis as well. And here's how you think of them. And here's how you protect against them. They've introduced more uh, nuanced thinking about anti-Semitism. So those ideas about how to fight anti-Semitism, what it is... And uh, what solidarity it looks like between uh, Jewish and Palestinian folks—that's increased because of the presence of anti-fascism. So it's made huge strides, not just for the Palestinian solidarity movement, but really for all social movements across the country.
0: So, how important is the Antifa movement in protecting Palestinian solidarity from anti-Semitism and, in general, what is the role that the Antifa movement playing right now? You know, the far right said that there were. Armed armies of Antifa that were going to be invading cities. What is misunderstood about Antifa and where their strength and power really lies?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of Antifa kind of conspiracy theories that have gone around about its size and coordination and scope. But in reality, anti fascist organizations, Antifa organizations, are simply defensive organizations that push back on the growth of the far right. And so when we're talking about something like a Palestine demo, A lot of times this might be security. It also might be the folks who understand what the local far-right activist scene looks like and so they can kick those folks out or identify them. Groups like Outlive Them in New York have been doing this kind of work. uh, The One People's Project, mm-hmm. where they'll show up at these sort of events and they can help to identify them, let people know that these people are trying to show up, that kind of thing. So all of that has been really essential. And then bringing in that nuanced conversation about anti-Semitism, educating folks on that, um, addressing it. And that's part of what has created such a strong Jewish presence here is because people feel like um, the um concerns over anti-Semitism are understood and respected as well.
0: So, you also write that recently the Jewish anti-fascist organization outlived Them, who you just mentioned, outed a Christian nationalist activist who had been trying to join Palestinian solidarity uh, demonstrations using messages like Jewish conspiracy theory is the real white supremacy. A far-right Christian nationalist attempting to co-opt not only the Palestinian solidarity movement, but also the idea of racial supremacy and applying it to others. How integral, how necessary. Is the co optation of leftist ideas to the far right, and how successful are they at co opting the left's beliefs and manipulating them for their own benefit?
2: It's a really essential piece of the far right's strategy because what they want to do is to take their own kind of radical vision of the world and speak it in a language that can attract new folks. And I think it's important to remember that. All of the kind of radical moments and big political issues that mobilize the left have some effect on the far right as well. So remember, um, a large portion of the far right emerged during the farm crisis of the 70s and 80s. People are losing family farms, foreclosures, things like that. And so that is what helped build up a lot of the energy of what became the militia movement. Well, that's also the kind of energy that builds the tenants' rights movement and the anti-foreclosure movement um, after in 2008 and, and forward after the financial crisis, right? Those are both similar sort of inputs. It's just the output ends up being different. And so what they need to do is find critical issues that are moving people, and then they can use that kind of opening, that crack in the window to sort of move people into their direction of it. I think that because the Palestine Solidarity Movement has been so key to the left, they would likely have less opportunities to do that, but they are trying to find it in places where people are really desperate to build coalitions. And that's usually part of the the way that they find uh, an entryist strategy.
0: You also write that as the movement against Israel's genocide in Gaza builds up steam, we can expect to see the far right disingenuously attempt to bring in recruits who are also outraged by Israel's violence. By focusing on the demands for democracy and equality in Palestine, organizers can drill to the heart of what the movement is about and oust those who do not share those underlying principles. So instead of focusing on opposition to Israel, do you think the Palestinian Solidarity Movement could have more success fighting for peace if they focus on their demand for democracy and equality? For all, rather than what you call Israel's genocide, focusing on that instead does does focusing on Israel or its war crimes, in your opinion, undermine the effectiveness of the message Palestinian solidarity is trying to send in having peace in the Middle East?
2: No, I don't think so. I think what's happening right now is largely one-sided assault on Gaza. That's not to you know forgive Hamas's attacks, which were atrocious, but we need to look at the disproportionate force that's being used. Um, but I think. To get at sort of what you're saying here, calling for a ceasefire is a ceasefire for everybody, right? That actually benefits everyone. And calling for things like binationals and one state solution in Israel Palestine is a positive vision forward. So it's sort of thinking about like, what can we all build together? And I think having that vision of what the future could look like is always a stronger position for a social movement because it has that constructive element rather than just the resistance element. So I think starting to think into the future of like, what would it look like? They have an Israel-Palestine or a free Palestine that respects all of its inhabitants, that has equality and justice for everyone, that allows all people there to partner in building a new future. I think thinking about that is a way of reframing all kinds of resistance actions with that really positive kind of future-oriented messaging and vision.
0: One last question for you, Shane. We have been speaking with writer and filmmaker Shane Burley, who posted the Waging Nonviolence article, How the Far Right is Trying to Manipulate the Crisis in Gaza. Shane is the author of the 2021 book, Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse. He is also the author of the 2017 book. Fascism today, what it is and how to end it, you can follow Shane on Twitter at Shane underscore Burley B-U-R-L-E-Y, then followed by the number one. One last question for you, Shane, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you, may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So not all Jewish people are Zionists. How can How can a rhetoric be developed? that separates anti-Zionism from anti-Semitism. I think we have to get back to what we talked in the beginning. What is motivating
2: someone's politics? There are some people whose anti-Zionism is, is clearly motivated by you know anti-Jewish animists or con- anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, but there's a lot of people whose anti-Zionism, or, or correctly put, criticism of Israel, that's motivated by their desire for a free and just Palestine, for an equi- a more equitable arrangement for everyone there, and against what they see as sort of Western imperialism encroaching on indigenous people. There's also Zionism that's motivated by anti-Semitism. Like we talked about Christian Zionism, a lot of far-right nationalists across history have supported Zionism simply as a way of getting Jews out of their countries. And then also there's a lot of uh, Zionism that's not motivated by anti-Semitism, that's just part of the conflicted territory of Jewish politics, for example. So instead, we need to ask questions. Where are these ideas coming from? How do they work? How are they showing up? What is motivating people's actual political decisions? And I think when we start looking at it that way, we start seeing an endemic problem with anti-Semitism on the right, shows up on the left sometimes too, but it's much more sort of um, built into the right's political framework. And so I think it's important to sort of separate those conversations, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, and still look at what's actually motivating it underneath.
0: Shane, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. This is something that nobody is discussing, and that's what we always try to feature and focus on here on This Is Hell. And whenever you have any new article that is coming out that you'd like to like us to know about, or if you have a new book or film coming out, please contact us because we'd love to have you back on the show. Uh, thanks so much. I'd love to come back. All right. Take care, Shane. Take care. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table, this is hell will please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far i think you're gonna be doing patreon and there's a lot on discord this week as well
1: there are yes um this week's question from hell is what are you uncritically supporting these days as authored by will ippin thank you will so blame will for that you're welcome <laughs> um let's see oh dan k d's nuts <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> Dan no, uh, different Dan. Oh, okay. All right. I was yep, yep. we, really Dan to, K. we really got to Because we really gotta review those resumes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't pass up a good your mom or D's <laughs> nuts. <house, laughs> or D's nuts, right? Um, let's see. Old Grouch says <laughs> ending all uses of fossil fuels as well as nuclear powered electricity. All right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, good dra- luck to you on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh Essential says, "Giant meteor." (laughs) Adi replies, "Dozen nuts." (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Sense a theme here, (laughs) (laughs) right? uh, (laughs) Sorry, uh, Bruce S replies. uh, Oh, I never know how to pronounce this word. For starters, "Azimandius" by Percy. Bishy Shelley Oh, Pythi- Bish Bish, sorry yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pythagorean theorem for another Alright Alright Thanks for all the Greek Exactly uh, Neil C replies Aged rocker retur- Reunion tours <laughs> So what are you st- uh, Standing behind Supporting uncritically Right That's the question from Alex? Yeah okay. Aged rocker Reunion tours <laughs> oh my god Nice <laughs> Backwards Jefferson Replies Ben Norton's Geopolitical economy report Their analysis Is consistent And trustworthy Yeah Ben has been on the show before He's uh, really great uh, Mason W Replies Last week's winner To the question from That's home. right See how they follow up, my buddy six beers deep, about to do a backflip off the pong table. <laughs> you always got to support that. Yeah, paint, sure. Painting a real picture. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's Patreon. Do you want to do some Discord, or do you want to just move? Yeah, on? Yeah, let's do some Discord. All right, all right. Replying to the question from Hell: What are you uncritically supporting these days? Musifer replies. Great name, <laughs> Um The Baltimore Ravens. John Harbaugh for president. We need to increase our economy's fourth down conversion rate and start going for two when the statistics call for it. <laughs> <It's> ridiculous. <laughs> Not a lot of NFL content in, our, in the answers. No, so thank, thank you, God. Yeah. <laughs> Crime Doctor 2019 replies... I am uncritically supporting Eve Barlow's renouncement of, quote, progressivism, because among other things, she was given what she calls a, quote, hate name, Eve Fartlow. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time. I think I've seen her name in passing somewhere else. But yeah. If yeah. you want to
0: know more about that, go to Discord yeah,
1: community page. Not terribly familiar. Thanks, yeah. Crime Doctor. <laughs> Kim G. Replies dinner omelets Amen. <laughs> hey, I love dinner omelets. Breakfast for dinner. That's right. Um Sarah in Wisconsin replies, whatever you want me to support, Chuck. <laughs> Sweet. Fearless thought leader. I'll tell you something uh you can support in just a little bit. Alright, alright. Uh Hugh replies, my neighbor leaving their twelve foot tall skeleton up. A week past Halloween and counting. <laughs> I'm here for that. I That's love pretty cool. Halloween decorations. Yes,
0: that is pretty cool. And they're still up. And it doesn't make any sense anymore. It's Thanksgiving and there's a 12 foot skeleton in your yes. front lawn. Why not? Why not?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, Ciao-lite, or.
0: Kilter. Kilter. Yeah. Yeah. He's a longtime listener from, oh my God, I'm going to tell you the wrong country within Britain. So I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Great Britain. So I'm not going to tell you. Uh, But uh, yeah, longtime listener. He's actually come here all the way from, let's say, Scotland. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) And uh, joined us during This Is Hell office hours and our uh, holiday office party. So how how do
1: you pronounce that again? Kilter,
0: K I L T E R. Like the, even though that's a
1: terrible mispronunciation. All right. Well, you know, we don't all have those monims <laughs> uh, kilter replies four day week for five days of pay oh I like that I like that a lot Anymore or is uh, that that's it for Patreon? All of Discord, Discord and Patreon.
0: All right, so uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever this is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on Support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio. You can tweet it at us at This Is Hell Radio. You can post it in, on our Patreon page or in our Discord community. You can email it to us at, at hell.com but we must have your answer. By the end of this week's show When we are announcing This week's winner Following our final guest of the week And Seb Vupper Doing the past inside the present Which gives you The historic content from the past To make better sense of the present We'll have the rest of your answers To the question from hell Later this week It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous Naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky Goopy, gloppy, globby, gory This week in Rotten History On November 6th, 1816 207 years ago this week and get ready for a confusing name former U.S. Senator Governor Morris died at his home in New York that's right, there was a senator who had the first name Governor if I ever had a kid I always wanted to name them Doctor so they wouldn't have to go get a PhD or an MD, they could just be Doctor, one of the reasons that I never had kids U.S. Senator Governor Morris was an abolitionist Who had signed the original Articles of Confederation And drafted the preamble to the U.S. Constitution And yes, Governor really was his name And also his mother's original surname Being given your mother's last name prior to marriage As your first or middle name was common at the time Senator Governor had come from a prominent family of soldiers, politicians and judges and had himself worked as a lawyer, as a member of the Continental Congress and as an ambassador to France before his elevation to the Senate. So at one time, Senator Governor was Ambassador Governor. We, he was also uh, one of the few, few Early U.S. political leaders who repeatedly protested the glaring contradiction in a constitution that professed freedom and equality for all while maintaining that some people would continue to be enslaved. To repeat, he was one of the few, and I stress few, early U.S. political leaders who pointed out the contradiction that slavery was legal in a country promising freedom and equality. Having lost his left leg in a carriage accident in Philadelphia, Morris walked on a wooden limb. He also had so many illicit and scandalous affairs with women that another early U.S. leader, John Jay, would later joke that Morris should have lost something else besides his leg. But after a long and active life, let's stress active, Morris had at least at last begun to suffer from various health problems. Including a painful infection and blockage that left him unable to empty his bladder. In desperation, he used a piece of whalebone in an attempt to pry open his urinary tract. The improvisation did not work, and Morris died at the age of 64. So, this is a public service announcement that first founding fathers were far more cool with slavery than Fox News, CNN, or anybody wants you to believe. And secondly, do not do your own improvised surgery on yourself, and definitely not with a whalebone. Also in Rotten History, during the week of November 6th through 11th, 1913, 110 years ago this week, the U.S. Great Lakes region, and man, we should use that phrase a lot more because we're not in the Midwest. We are in the Great Lakes region, experienced a cataclysmic windstorm and blizzard with hurricane force winds over 90 miles an hour and waves on Lake Michigan, Huron, and Superior estimated up to 50 feet high. That I can believe on Superior, I cannot believe that on any other Great Lake. A lack of sufficient data had prevented weather forecasters from predicting the storm. Accurately, And people across the region were caught unaware Where is it unawares? I've never figured out when to say unawares Yeah,
1: I'm not sure Yeah, it's a toughie
0: Lakefront uh, cities from Chicago to Cleveland Were hammered by massive amounts of snow and ice Which killed electric power and telephone service But it was the crews of merchant freighters on the lakes Who paid the highest price Nineteen ships either ran aground or were sunk Many losing their entire crews, between 250 and 275 people were killed, and cargo worth more than a million 1913 US dollars was also lost in what remains the most ferocious Great Lakes storm in recorded history. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Will, who is coming up as our next
1: guest here on This Is Hell? Our next guest is science journalist and columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, Faye Flam, who wrote the Nwema? Yeah, Nwema's. Magazine article. Uh, the, The man the hunter myth won't go away. Persistent myths about strictly defined. Social roles for humans in the past Only limit what it means to be part of society today It's
0: really great There's a few studies out about it uh, right? I've been reading those studies recently uh, first one came out in June uh, But this is something that people have known since the 1960s It's just that the myth continues So following Faye We will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dortch And Will, what
1: is Jeff doing during this week's moment of truth? Uh, Jeff returns with more Israeli propaganda that sets him off after Jeff who is our final guest for this week Will our final guest is professor and chair of UCLA's Inc. Department of English Sari Makdisi who returns to this is hell to talk about his n plus one article on Gaza no human being can exist how can a person make up for seven decades Of misrepresentation and willful Distortion in the time allotted To a soundbite
0: Yes, yeah, Sari McDesey was on our show I think way back in 2005 And I seriously doubt that he remembers Being on our show, but it's going to be great To have him back on I am your bitter, blind, broke, gaptooth radio show Podcast and live streaming host Chuck Mertz, thanks to Will Ippen for producing Today's show and for writing this week's Question from Hell See, we told you so This is Hell.